Welcome back, my spooky friends. This is Chappie, and you're listening to Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. Today, we're going to be going over Resurrection. It seems appropriate for the Happy Easter holiday. Um, so without further ado, let's get into it. All right, my spooky friends, let's get right into the first couple stories. This first set is going to come from Ranker.com. It's the 12 amazing real-life resurrection stories. The first one is Matthew, Matthew Wall. He was a farmer. On October 2nd, 1571, recently deceased young farmer Matthew Wall was lying in a coffin on the way to his own funeral. Even though the day was cool and damp, the whole village of Braham in Hertfordshire was out for the event, including Wall's distressed fiance. As the procession made their way to the church, one of the pallbearers slipped on wet leaves, dropping the coffin to the ground. The commotion was surprising. But when the men lifted the coffin again, they were even more shocked by what they heard next, the sound of knocking. Matthew Wall had come back to life and was banging on the walls of his own coffin. Wall eventually went on to marry his fiancée and live for another 24 years. Since then, Brahan Village has commemorated Old Man's Day every year on October 2nd. To celebrate, village children bring brooms to sweep leaves from the lane in front of the church. Presumably, no one slips on them. Any more dropped coffins and they could have a zombie apocalypse on their hands. <laughs> funny, funny. But yeah, back in the day, this was 1571. Back in the day, they didn't really have um, the medical marvels that we have today. So... Sometimes they would accidentally bury people that were still alive in just like in comas or whatever. And they would take like a string and put it in the coffin and put it all the way up uh, and tie it to a bell above the ground. And so for like three days, they would have somebody watch that bell and see if it rang. And if it didn't ring in those three days, they would, you know, be like, yep, they were dead. <laughs> I just think that's crazy. Like, you would have a funeral and everything. <laughs> People would put you in the ground six feet under, and you could still be alive. That's wild. So, all right, let's get on to the next one. Anne Green, convicted child killer. In 1650, Anne Green was convicted of murdering her bastard child and hiding its body at her boss's house. Soon, she was sentenced to death by hanging and led to the gallows, where she was fitted with a noose. Her last words, she proclaimed her innocence and begged, Sweet Jesus, receive my soul. After the hangman kicked the little stool out from under her, Green's body was left to hang for a half an hour. During this time, her pals reported uh, that she thumped on her breast and hung with all the weight upon her legs, lifting her up and then pulling her down again with a sudden jerk, which seemed very rude to me, but apparently they were trying to quicken her death and lessen her suffering. Whatever. Eventually, Green's lifeless body was cut down from the gallows and put in a coffin, which was taken to a doctor who was to dissect her. Just as the doctor prepared to slice her open from the chest to the gut, Anne's corpse groaned. There are two versions, maybe more, of what happened next. In one, the doctors immediately began to warm her body, put hot cordials in her mouth, and doy 
and bleed her. In others, someone tried to kick her back into the land of the dead by stomping on her chest. The force of the kick was so strong that it completely revived her. Either way, Green, having been through enough for one day, was granted a reprieve and declared innocent. She lived a long time after her resurrection and bore three more children, none of whom she was convicted of killing. Wow. People in the old days, man. That's wild. Let's see. Number three, Majori McCall, Moneybags. In the 18th century, Lurgan, Ireland, Dr. John McCall's wife, Majori, Marjorie, Marjorie, fell ill with fever and died shortly after. Since he was a doctor and therefore rich, Marjorie naturally had an expensive gold wedding ring. But at her death, neither John nor any mourner was able to remove it from her swollen finger. Due to fear that her fever would spread, Marjorie was hastily buried in Shankill Cemetery, and news of the doctor's dead wife spread throughout the neighborhood. Soon, some grave robbers got busy digging up Marjorie's... I don't know why I'm having trouble with that name. Marjorie's coffin... When they pried open the lid, they were delighted to find that, yes, the valuable ring was still on her finger. Try as they might, they could not pull off the ring, so they agreed to saw off the whole finger. As the sharp blade cut into her skin, Marjorie came back to life, sat bolt upright, and shrieked like a tween with beaver fever. A miracle if there ever was one. When the startled corpse, desecrating thieves, fled... Marjorie was left alone to climb out of the grave and wander home. Across town, her widower, Dr. John, was boozing with some relatives, sorrowful at the loss of his wife, but also pumped about his newfound bachelorhood. When he heard a gentle rapping on his chamber door, he opened it to find his dead wife, extra creepy, all wraith-like in her burial robes and bloody from the old salt-to-the-finger ordeal. The shock was too much for the doctor, and he instantly dropped dead on the floor and was buried in the grave Marjorie had just vacated. I have heard this story before. All right, number four, St. Odrin Naysayer. In 548 AD, Christian folks in Iona, Scotland, wanted to build a chapel near the ancient burial ground. The problem was, no matter what they did, the work they constructed was destroyed each night, so they had to start all over again the next day. Eventually, a guy named Columba got it in his head that if they buried someone alive in the foundation, they would be able to finish building the chapel. With a promise that his soul would be safe, a monk named Orin, or Ordrin, Columba's son or brother, volunteered or was volunteered to be buried alive, so he was. When the dirty work was done, the folks above ground finished the chapel. After some time, Columbus started to miss Odrin, so he opened the burial pit again. Or, one day, the dead back-to-life Orin shoved his face up through a wall and began to talk. He said, There is no great wonder in death. There is no hell, as you would suppose, nor heaven that people talk about. When Orin began to try to escape his grave in the foundation, Columba flipped out and shoved him back down again, quickly covering the pit with earth. 
or he had Oren's body removed and buried somewhere else on the grounds of heresy, his own brother <laughs> or son. Huh. That's uh, quite a story from 548 AD. Wow. That's wild. Number five, Thomas A. Kempis, the Faithless. In life, Catholic monk Thomas Kempis wrote The Imitation of Christ, which everyone agreed was pretty good and pious publication. Sometime after his death in Zwolle in 1471, church authorities began to think Thom Thomas would make a good saint. They exhumed his body with plans to go forward with his canonization, but were bummed to find scratch marks inside the coffin lid and splinters embedded beneath Thomas's nails. Despite the holy miracle of his resurrection after death, Thomas was denied canonization and never became a saint. After all, what kind of candidate for sainthood would try and escape his fate or death? Yikes. I would not want to be alive during those times and be like in a coma. And they're like, yep, he's dead. And then them just <laughs> burying me. Because um, it sounds like it happened quite a lot. All right, number six. I do not even know how to say this name. It's N-G-S-W-E-E-Hawk. So, mm, Sweehawk. We're going to call him Sweehawk. Yep. And it says Brother Hater. April 2011. After getting... <laughs> So the hardest name to say comes from April 2011. That's funny. After getting into fisticuffs with his own brother, 65-year-old Sweehawk sustained injuries so bad that not even a ventilator machine could revive him. Doctors at Malaysia Hospital did CPR on his body for 45 minutes, but at around 11 a.m. they gave up and pronounced him dead. Two and a half hours later, Sweehawk started to breathe again. Okay, that's modern day. It's in Malaysia, but I mean, semi-modern day hospital. That's wild. Alright. Number seven. Colombian woman. Check my time. Still good. February 2010, after falling ill from a serious condition, a 45-year-old woman in Cali, Colombia was declared dead. Staff at a medical clinic signed her death certificate, and her body was transferred to a funeral home to be prepared for burial. Just as a worker went to inject her lifeless limbs with formaldehyde preservative, the woman miraculously began to breathe and move again. Oof, I could not work at a mortuary. There's just, I've heard there's too many things that the human body does after death, like it can groan. It can release gases, but it sounds like yelling. <laughs> so they can be, it looks like breathing, but really it's just gases moving around, stuff like that. There's just, there's just too much. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, I can do this. And almost start to like cut into them or something. And it'd be like, <laughs> like yawn or something. I'd be like, nope, I'm out. I'm out. I'm done. Two weeks notice. Here's my here's my day. I cannot come back. I will sweep the floor for two weeks. I don't know. Freaky freaky. 
All right, number eight, South African grandfather. July 2011, an 80-year-old man in Eastern Cape died due to complications during an asthma attack. His family called the morgue to come fetch the body. When he was then locked in a refrigerator compartment to cool, 24 hours later, while the family were meeting to discuss funeral arrangements, workers at the morgue heard someone yelling for help. Thinking it was a ghost, they called the police for backup. Upon their arrival, the cops released the reanimated corpse of the old man, who was nearly scared to death. Again. Wow. That was 2011. So these people are dying. They're just coming back to life. Weird. Y'all better make sure if I die, y'all better make sure I'm dead. <laughs> I don't want to be coming back awake in my coffin. That sounds horrible. All right. 2009. Saudi mom. During a cesarean section, I don't know why I couldn't say that. Cesarean section delivery in Kuwait City Hospital. A woman in labor, in labor was pronounced dead. Her grief-stricken husband was handled, handed her death certificate along with their new baby, who was born with birth defects. The would-be mother's body was whisked off to the morgue, where it was locked up in the hospital's other losses for the day. Two hours later, the woman was struck with life again, but in a very dark, very cold place. She screamed and banged on the door of the deep freezer until a worker finally heard her. Why did these things lock from the inside anyway? Upon her release, the woman's husband was called back to the hospital to return her death certificate, which he was not allowed to keep as a souvenir. Huh. Number 10. Old Polish Lady. 2009, a man called an ambulance when his 84-year-old wife fainted. The emergency service doctor declared the woman dead and sent her to the morgue. She lay deceased for several hours in line, waiting to be embalmed and whatnot, when the Holy Spirit hopped into her again. <laughs> oh, this, this writer is, like, funny. Or he's trying to be. Morticians noticed the woman's body bag moving and unzipped it to find her vital functions were all working again. I said, praise him. <laughs> all right, checking the time. All right, I think that's good. And we're going to take a short break and be right back at it after this with more resurrection stories look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do i even say other than hey <sighs> well that's why they're introducing an all-new bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier starting the chat better and dating safer They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right, welcome back to Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. We're talking about resurrection stories today, which seems kind of appropriate. So, number 11, Duns Scotus. When Scottish theologian John Duns Scotus died of apoplexy, <laughs> not saying that right, in November 1308 in Cologne, Germany, 
Uh, he was buried in a tomb in the chapel of the Franciscan Church. Some years later, his vault was opened again, and Scotus was found out outside of his coffin. And his resurrection from the dead, he had tried to, hard to open the tomb from the inside, but to no avail. His hands were torn and covered in blood, and he was dead again. Oh my gosh. You guys can't just be burying people. <laughs> that would suck to find out that you're like buried in a tomb that you cannot open or dig out of. That's crazy. Number 12. Oh, this guy looks freaky as all get out. Greg Gregory Rasputin. Nobody likes a know-it-all, and a rumored psychic Rasputin was no exception. Though he was murdered several times, the Russian mystic stubbornly returned to the realm of the living time and again. On June 29, 1914, his first murderer, a former prostitute named, named Guseva, stabbed Rasputin in the belly until his tummy parts came spilling out. Satisfied with her work, she proclaimed, I have killed the Antichrist, or an Antichrist, but he came back. On December 16, 1916, a group of Rasputin's frenemies fed him cake and wine laced with enough cyanide to kill five men. When he didn't die or even gag, one whipped out a gun and shot Rasputin in the back. He hit the floor dead, and the conspirators left to go celebrate. When they returned, Rasputin was alive again, and of course, all in a rage. They shot him a couple more times. When Rasputin was resurrected again, the guys murdered him for the third time by beating him with clubs and ale allegedly cutting off his ding-dong. <laughs> then they tied him up, wrapped him in a blanket, and dumped his body in the icy Neva River. A few days later, Rasputin's body was pulled from the river, dead, with his arms outstretched. This meant he had come back to life again at least enough to break free of his restraints. Water was found in his lungs, evidence that he was alive for some time in the water. The autopsy report ultimately listed the cause of death as hypothermia. Despite the poison, the beatings, the four bullet holes he had his sustained, including one in his forehead. But lastly, and not leastly, when Rasputin's body was being burned in the woods in St. Petersburg, he sat up in the fire and tried to move around. Now that is persistence. Oh, my goodness. That, that story was wild. That story is crazy. I think Rasputin had made a deal with somebody <laughs> coming back that many times. My gosh. Comes from the Chicago, Chicago Reader, their website. It's called Meet Resurrection Mary, the Ghost of Archer Avenue. Um, it's by Edward McClelland. Just southwest of Chicago, on Archer Avenue, in Justice, Illinois, across the street from Resurrection Cemetery, is a bar called Chet's Melody Lounge. Chet is a classical roadside tavern with a pool table, a jukebox, and a popcorn machine, and a large clientele of bikers. But Chet's has an unusual tradition. Every Sunday, the staff leaves a Bloody Mary at the end of the bar for a ghost. The ghost's name is Resurrection Mary, and she has haunted th this stretch of Archer since the 1930s, when she, picked was, when she picked up young men dancing to big bands at the O'Henry Ballroom. 
An old Southsider named Vince was still telling his Resurrection Mary story to paranormal investigators half a century after it happened. When he did, he sounded just as haunted as if he'd been there the night he met the ghost. But he went out dancing that night. Vince put on his favorite suit, a double-breasted gray number with square off shoulders, and his most colorful tie, red with Hawaiian hula girls and grass skirts. <laughs> That's... That's funny. That's his, like, I'm going out to meet the ladies <laughs> outfit. A tie with red with hula girls on the grass skirts. Man, what year was that? It must have been peacocking back in the day. I mean, they'll probably make fun of our rave outfits, you know, someday. But I digress. He cruised Archer Avenue with the top down on his Chevy Cabriolet. The night was warm, and he slicked back his hair with enough brylene cream, brow cream to keep the wind from messing it up. The old Henry Ballroom was going to be jumping, as it always was on Saturdays. Vince had danced to some of the biggest of the bands there. Harry James, Artie Shaw, Tom Dorsey. Tonight was just Chet Bar barsutis and his merry men but the south side southwest side of chicago but even the local combos knew all the hot numbers on the hit parade inside the ballroom vince spent his first hour drowning enough cuba libris and smoking enough lucky strikes to work up the courage to ask a girl for a dance by the time the band got jumping on jumping at the woodside he was in a bold state of mind. Spotting a pretty blonde girl in a white dress, he said, as casually as he could, Hey, it ain't right to stand still for Count Basie. Why don't we cut a rug on this one? <laughs> cut a rug. The girl smiled, and they joined the jitter-bugging throng on the parquet floor. The band played a few more fast numbers, Boogie Woogie and Jeepers Creepers, so Vince didn't get a chance to talk to his partner. That he didn't mind too much. Sometimes girls asked what he did for a living. He was a bookkeeper at the Union Stockyards. Even though he didn't work anywhere near the slaughterhouse, that gave some girls the willies. When the band segued into the... Uh, begin the begin, I don't know how to say that... Vince was finally able to get close to his partner. Her name was Mary, and she lived, she said, on Damon Avenue in Brighton Park neighborhood. That wasn't far from where Vince lived, in the house he shared with his parents. Something else he didn't like to tell girls. As they slow danced, he noticed for the first time the girl's hands were cold, her skin brittle. Mary seemed to notice that he noticed too, so he made what he hoped was a lighthearted comment. Cold hands mean you have a warm heart. Mary smiled, and they danced together the rest of the evening. After the final number, Vince offered Mary a ride home. Her place was just a straight shot up, Marcher. But after they had driven north a few miles, Mary insisted he pulled the car over. Outside of the locked gates of the Resurrection Cemetery, the graveyard of Chicago's Polish community, Vince was baffled and he complied. Mary opened the door and stepped out onto the roadside. I have to go and you can't follow me, she said. Then she walked towards the gates, laid a hand on the iron chain that bound the gates together, and vanished.
Vince spent the rest of the night driving his Chevy up and down Archer Avenue, looking for the blonde girl in the white dress. He drove until dawn, and then, when the cemetery gates opened, he drove through rows of tombstones, engraved with crosses and angels, names such as Butkowski and Geitza and Pietschertz. He was impelled not simply by the mystery of having seen a ghost, but by the hope that the girl he had danced with was not a ghost, and that he could dance with her again on some future night. Catching no sign of Mary, he decided to finally drive to the address she had given him before they got into the car. It was a brick bungalow, and on the street of nearly identical houses, separated by concrete gangways a few feet wide. Only adornments on the porch and in the yards, an American flag, a statue of the Virgin, and a half-bathtub differentiated the dwellings. Vince rang the doorbell. His eyes were red with sleeplessness. His dark beard had not been shaven for a day. <laughs> his hair had fallen loose over his forehead. The middle-aged woman who answered the door looked startled by the young caller's dishevelment. She looked even more startled when he asked, Is Mary home? Mary doesn't live here anymore, said the woman, who looked old enough and enough like Mary to be her mother. Mary died in a car accident four years ago. Who are you? Uh, I knew Mary in high school, Vince lied. It was the only plausible story for why he'd been unaware of her death. And you didn't know? I went to college downstate after I graduated. That much was true. He had attended Illinois State University. I just moved back to Chicago. Looking past the woman who was still blocking the doorway, Vince spied a framed photo resting atop the piano in the front room. It was the girl he had danced with the night before. An ever youthful face, never to age. The face of a ghost. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you. Mary went out dancing with some boys she worked with at, at Brock's, and they never made it to the dance hall. One of the boys crashed the car into the L at Wacker and Lake. Mary was thrown through the windshield and died on the way to the hospital. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sorry for your loss. If you want to visit Mary's grave, she's buried in Resurrection Cemetery. Vince never returned to the old Henry Ballroom or to Resurrection Cemetery. He had never learned Mary's last name, so he could not have located her tombstone. In fact, he was so shaken at having danced with a ghost, he never set foot in a dance hall ever again. In Resurrection Mary, as the girl's ghost came to be known, continued to haunt Archer Avenue. When the big band era ended after the war, Mary rested quietly in her grave. Because the music she had hoped to dance to on her final night among the living was no longer heard at O. Henry, but in the 1970s her ghost rose again. Mary's family, not being wealthy, had buried her in a term grave, a rented plot that only held remains for a quarter century. By that time, the term expired. All Mary's loved ones had joined her in the cemetery, leaving no one alive to renew it. During a renovation, Mary's coffin was removed to an unmarked grave in a remote corner of the cemetery. One night, a suburban police officer received a report of a woman in a white dress walking through the grounds of Resurrection Cemetery. When he arrived at the gates, he found two bars pried open, with scorch marks where a pair of hands would have gripped them. The following year, a couple driving down Archer Avenue saw a girl wearing the same white dress lying in the street. The man at the wheel swerved to avoid her, but she disappeared before his tires could make contact. 
In the 1990s, the owner of Chet's Melody Lounge was pulling out of his driveway when he saw a man running up the road, waving desperately. I need to use your phone. I hit a woman back there. I can't find her body. Was she a blonde woman in a white dress? How did you know? That was Resurrection Mary. Don't worry. You didn't hit anyone. You saw a ghost. Despite these reappearances on Archer Avenue, Mary has yet to drink her Bloody Mary at Chet's. When a ghost is roaming your neighborhood, though, you have better be ready to soothe her restless spirit. Oh, man. That is cool. It says, Exerted with permission from Folktales and Legends of the Middle West by Edward McClellan. Belt Publishing, 2018. All right. This one comes from LiveScience.com. It's Improbable Resurrections, Five Real Cases of Coming Back to Life. On Easter Sunday, Christians around the world will celebrate Jesus Christ's resurrection, in which he is said to have risen from the dead three days after his crucifixion, according to the New Testament. Biblical miracles aside, the secular world is replete with stories of recoveries and near-certain death. Over the years, people have survived everything from brain-eating amoebas to comas and lived tale to tale. Here we bring you true accounts of some of the most improbable resurrections in medical history. Coma. Hollywood movies make it seem like comas are nothing more than light sleep, but the reality is a person doesn't always awaken from a coma, which is defined as a deep state of unconsciousness that persists for an indefinite period of time. But in rare cases, people have been known to rouse from coma states even after many years. A woman named Patricia White Bull entered a type of coma called a persistent vegetative state in which the patient is awake but not responsive while giving birth to her son. The LA Times reported, White Bull, that's such a weird thing to call her. It's Patricia White Bull, but they call her White Bull the rest of the time. Patricia Bull lay in a near coma for 16 years, 16 years, then one day in 1999, a nurse, as a nurse rearranged her blankets, she reportedly sat up and said, Don't do that. Other coma cases of severely brain-damaged patients have been reported, but in most of these, patients either wake up within a few days or weeks or remain in a coma state the rest of their lives. All right, the next one is shot in the head. Few injuries can be instantly fatal as being shot in the head, but on occasion, people have been known to survive the brutal trauma of a bullet to the brain. In January 2011, U.S. Representative Gabriel Giffords of Arizona was shot in the head in an apparent assassination attempt during the shooting that left six other people dead. Giffords was in critical condition. Doctors removed part of her skull during surgery to prevent damage from brain swelling and placed her in a medically induced coma. The, the bullet passed through Gifford's skull front to back, causing less damage than a shot passing from one hemisphere to the other would have. Gifford's recovered, but she still has difficulty speaking and walking, and her right arm is paralyzed. Rabies. Everyone's familiar with the image of a rabid dog, mouth frothing, ready to deliver a fatal bite. The rabies virus attacks the central nervous system, causing brain disease and death within days of the onset of symptoms. 
usually transmitted to humans by bites from wild animals such as raccoons, skunks, bats, and foxes. The rabies disease is preventable if treated by a vaccine before symptoms begin. But after symptoms occur, survival is rare. There have been fewer than 10 documented cases of human survival from rabies. Wow. And only two of these patients have not received preventative drugs, according to the CDC. Gina, Gina Geis is the first person known to have survived rabies without receiving a vaccine. When she was 15, Geis was infected by a bite from a rabid bat in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Doctors put Geis in an induced coma to allow her immune system enough time to develop antibodies to the virus and gave her antiviral drugs. Geis survived and recovered most of her cognitive abilities within a few months. Others have since been treated successfully using the same protocol. Oof. I mean, rabies, that's not something that you think you're ever going to get, but I guess you can't expect a bat to bite you in Wisconsin. My gosh. All right, let's check our time. Okay, let's take a short break and then get right back at it after this. Hello, welcome back to Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and we'll get right back into our resurrection stories. All right, a catatonic state. In the 1990 film Awakenings, starring Robert De Niro and Robert Williams, is a true story of how a doctor revived a group of catatonic patients who survived an encephalitis epidemic in the 1920s. The film is based on 1973 memoir of neurologist and author Oliver Sacks, who treated patients who survived a form of that called encephalitis lethargia. The disease can trigger a delayed physical and mental response and lethargy, according to the National Institutes of Health. Sachs administered the then-experimental drug L-DOPA, which increases the levels of the brain chemical dopamine and is used to treat Parkinson's disease. The treatment awakened many of Sachs' patients from their catatonia, hence the name of the film. Ugh, that was a lot of big scientific words. I did not enjoy reading that one. All right, brain-eating amoeba. Brain-eating amoeba. One of the more miraculous medical recoveries in recent years has been from infections to with the brain-eating amoeba, the parasite which lives in warm bodies of fresh water, enters through the nose and eats its way into the nerves of the brain, or it munches away at brain cells. The infection is almost always fatal, but few people have have survived. In August 2013, 12-year-old Harley Hardig of Arkansas became the first, the third person to survive an infection of a brain-eating amoeba. Hardig contracted the parasite at a water park. Doctors gave her a cocktail of antifungal medications that were used to treat two other people successfully in 1978 and 2003, as well as an experimental drug developed for breast cancer. They also cooled down her body to prevent brain damage, a procedure sometimes used to treat traumatic brain injury. Hardig recovered and is currently attending school. 
As far as crucifixion is concerned, it may be possible to survive a short period of time. Indeed, some people take part in a non-lethal crucifixion as a devotional practice, but that's another story. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our next article. All right, this comes from The Independent. True tales of people coming back to life during funerals and mortuaries. It's by Adam Lusher. In life, con conventional wisdom assures us only two things are certain, death and taxes. Recent goings-on in the Peruvian village of Tingo Maria, however, would suggest that the latter is more concerned is more certain than the former. Here it was at the middle of the open casket funeral of Watson Franklin Doretto declared dead on October 21st. Mourners became convinced that they could see 28-year-old's ribcage rising and falling as he continued to breathe. A doctor was reportedly summoned and confirmed Dr. or Mr. Doretto showed vital signs. The dead, undead Mr. Moretto was transferred from his coffin to the hospital. Alas, the Independent has now reported this resurrection story does not have a happy ending. The mourners had hoped for. At the hospital, the young man was for the second time confirmed dead. But his relatives still claimed that he might have been alive at his funeral. And if nothing else... Mr. Doretto's story serves as an unsettling reminder that sometimes when people are declared dead, it ain't necessarily so. As previous generations knew all too well, that's why in the 18th and 19th century, some inventors sought to get rich by selling the anxious public a marvelous new contraption, the safety coffin. Upon finding oneself buried alive, as the 1868 patent put in, one had merely to summon help by putting a cord attached to an alarm bell on the surface. The Vester burial case safety coffin even became with add-ons such as the ladder, <laughs> so that should a person be interred um, ere life is extinct, he can, on recovery to consciousness, ascend from grave and the coffin by the ladder. Those living in modern, medically advanced 21st century may scoff at such excesses of caution, but before you do, perhaps you should consider a few cautionary tales of the waking dead. Take, for example, the strange and supposedly miraculous case of Mr. Walter Williams. On February 26, 2014, in the southern U.S. state of Mississippi, Holmes, Coroner, Holmes County Coroner Dexter Howard was called to the hospice that had become the final home of 70-year-old 78-year-old Mr. Williams. Having checked for pulse and found none, the coroner declared Mr. Williams dead. He completed his paperwork and transported Mr. Williams inside a body bag to the embalming room of Porter and Sons Funeral Home in Lexington. But before the Albany embalming process could begin, the body bag started moving. We noticed his legs beginning to move, like kicking, Mr. Howard told CNN. He also began to do a little breathing. Mr. Williams was alive and literally kicking. The astonished coroner could think of only one rational explanation. Perhaps a defibrillator implant previously placed beneath the skin on Mr. Williams' chest had started, had jump-started his heart after he was placed in the body bag. 
But the bottom line, Mr. Howard insisted, it's a miracle. In recounting this modern miracle, CNN touched CNN touched upon a, another quirk in the death business. Across the world, procedures and personnel for declaring death can vary. In the UK, coroners like Mr. Howard cannot declare death. The job is left to two medical practitioners who have been registered for at least five years. But in the US, the coroner can decide. And at the time of Mr. Williams' miracle, CNN reported that 1,500 American counties elected their coroners, and most didn't require medical degrees. What? A coroner doesn't require a medical degree, but they can pronounce someone dead? What the crap? <laughs> Mr. Howard did the 22 years, did have 22 years experience as a county coroner and deputy county coroner, but he was an elected official, not a doctor. About two weeks later, when Mr. Williams died for good, it was Mr. Howard who again declared him dead. Every case I do is a learning experience, said Mr. Howard. And the CNN asked him what he learned from the case he required. He replied that miracles can happen. Fortunately, Mr. Williams' family seemed to agree. It was a two-week miracle for me, and I enjoyed every minute of it, said the now truly dead man's nephew, Eddie Hester. Not all families of resurrected get so get so long with their loved ones. All right, let's check. In 2011, in a Kazan, in Kazan, Russia, as mourners filed past somebody's open coffin, the here, the hitherto dead heart attack victim reportedly woke up screaming at the realization of where she was lying. It did not end well, according to reports. Husband 51 was quoted as saying, "Her eyes fluttered, and we immediately rushed her to the hospital." but she only lived for another 12 minutes in intensive care before she died again, this time for good. Some reports suggest that the 49-year-old had died of another heart attack brought on by the shock of realizing she was at her own funeral. The husband was said to have been understandably angry at the doctors who first declared his wife dead, but even for experienced medical practitioners, declaring death can sometimes be a complicated business. Death is now usually defined as involving the irreversible cessation of brainstem function, but there remains debates within the medical profession as to what exactly death is and what tests should be done to confirm it. Adding to the difficulty are conditions like narcolepsy, causing extreme drowsiness, which can combine with catalepsy, a nervous disorder that slows breathing, reduces sensitivity to pain and stiffens the muscles as if rigor mortis has set in to the point some people seem pretty dead. Then there is severe hypothermia where the body drops below 28 degrees Celsius which can bring on something akin to the state of hibernation and make it appear as though someone is brain dead. Which might help explain the case of 91 year old Janina Kolkowitz who spent 11 hours in mortuary cold storage after being declared dead by a family doctor in Poland in 2014. Her death certificate had already been written by the time the mortuary attendants noticed the dead woman was wriggling in her body bag. See, <laughs> is it wriggling or is it just releasing gases? I could not work in a mortuary. I could not. Apparently, none too disturbed by her experience, Mrs. Uh, Kolkowitz 
warmed up with a bowl of soup and two pancakes. In Poland, it seemed the job of the mortuary attendant can be more lively than you might expect. Two years after Miss Kolkowitz's non-death experience in November last year, after a heavy night of vodka, a 25-year-old named only Camille reported, reportedly woke up wondering where he was, a common experience for the morning after the night before. But this time, Camille realized he was inside a mortuary refrigerator. Unbeknownst to him, he had suffered a cardiac arrest after leaving the pub in the Polish town and had been declared dead. Oh my goodness. According to local press reports, the hospital security guards heard sounds coming from one of the mortuary cool boxes. With shaking hands, the guard was quoted as saying, I opened one of the doors. I found a naked body asking me for a blanket. If the reports are to be believed, once Camille was warmed up and got dressed, he went back to the pub. There was a similar shock in the hospital mortuary in Egyptian port city of Alexandria in 1999. After a holidaying teacher of 32 collapsed while swimming off a nearby beach, he too was declared dead. He too was placed in a mortuary refrigerator and he too woke up. I find myself I found myself locked inside tight walls of metal and heard whispers of people I didn't recognize. Too cold to speak, Mr. Muhammad did the only thing he could do to draw attention that he was still alive. The corpse grabbed the hand of the mortuary attendant who was trying to close the fridge door. Screaming, help us, the attendant fled, fled along with a family who come to identify another body into the mortuary. Tottering on frozen feet, the Walking Dead teacher went to search for a phone to call his family. When he got through to them, they were very confused. Friends who had been on the beach had told his family he was dead. Another set of mortuary workers took their heels screaming in 2014 when Paul Matura woke up in the morgue in the hospital district of Kenya. The 24-year-old had tried to take his own life by swallowing insecticide. According to Kenyan newspaper reports, he was declared dead. In the morning, Mr. Matura's father and other relatives visited the morgue to view his body. In the afternoon, they returned home to start arranging the funeral, only to be told that after 24 hours on a mortuary slab, Mr. Matura had terrified attendants by coming back to life. Uh, his doctor was quoted as saying, atropine given to Mr. Matura to counteract the effects of the insecticide may have made him appear dead by drastically slowing his heart rate. This might have confused medical personnel, but the victim was saved before he could be embalmed. Whew. Oh my gosh. Tell him what? That is the worst. I'm starting to have no faith. <laughs> I'll be like, give me one of them bells. Put one of them bells from the 18th century in my coffin. Y'all better come check it too. Oh my gosh. There's a lot of people waking up from the dead. At least no one that started on his autopsy. But, which is what happened to Venezuelan man Carlos Camejo in 2007. 33-year-old was de reportedly declared dead after a car crash. He was taken to the morgue. According to El Universal newspaper, medical staff only realized that Mr. 
Kameho was still alive when they cut into his face to start the autopsy. I woke up because the pain was unbearable, the newspaper quoted him as saying. His wife went to the morgue expecting to identify a body and found him waiting in the corridor, alive. Mr. Kameho was photographed showing the scar on his face in the hospital document ordering an autopsy to be done on his dead body. Perhaps then we should understand why the great George Washington insisted the risk-averse preparations for his own funeral. In December 1799, as he lay dying, the founding father of the U.S. had requested, Have me decently buried, but do not let my body be put into the vault in less than three days after I am dead. <laughs> the great man was duly kept unburied in a mahogany casket for the required three days, but for him, this precaution against being buried alive proved unnecessary. For Zombie Grand, Louis... Siphon of a province in China. However, it was a different story. In 2012, a neighbor found the 95-year-old man in bed seemingly lifeless about two weeks after she had suffered a head injury in a fall. No matter how hard I pushed her and called her name, said her friend Chen, she made no reactions. In keeping with local custom, the dead woman was laid inside a coffin in her house for several days so friends and relatives could pay their respects. Um, her husband decided not to bother with nailing the coffin lid down. The day before the funeral, six days after she died, Mr. whatever his name is, returned to her house to find the coffin empty its lid removed, and the corpse gone. He was so terrified that immediately asked neighbors to come for help. They found her sitting on a stool in her kitchen cooking. She reportedly explained, I slept for a long time. After waking up, I felt so hungry and wanted to cook something to eat. Exiting the coffin, she had added, had not been easy. I pushed the lid for a long time to climb out. Maybe those safety coffins weren't such a bad idea after all. <laughs> Yeah, like I said, the safety coffin, I'm starting to get more and more on board with. <laughs> um, let's see. Let's check our time. Ooh, running long on time. All right, let's take a short break and get back into it right after this. All right, welcome back. This is Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie. And today we're talking about resurrection stories and some spooky Easter events. So today, right now, we're going to talk about five shocking real-life Easter horror stories. Holidays, like Easter, are meant to be a time of celebration with family and peace. But criminals never take a day off. Unfortunately, some hooligans see the holiday as the perfect opportunity to murder an entire family. This Sunday, while everyone gathers for church or fun-filled Easter egg hunts in the backyard, don't forget that there could be someone lying in wait for their chance to take you and all of your loved ones out. This comes from WickedHumor.com, an article by Amanda Tulos. <clears throat> As a cautionary tale, Wicked Horror has rounded up five of the most horrifying real-life crimes to occur on Easter. 
Remember, dear readers, that you are never safe, no matter what time of year it is. Well, that's fun. <laughs> Remember, you are never safe. All right. A Bronx shooting. On Easter Sunday in 2006, Joanne Cenabria and her family were traveling in their minivan when the unthinkable happened. They found themselves in line of fire when gunshots broke out on a busy Bronx intersection. One bullet went through the rear driver's side and punctured Cenabria's two-year-old David Pachico Jr. in the chest and killed him. Nine days later, Nicholas Morris was wrongfully charged with the crime. However, prosecutors eventually dropped the case against him due to lack of evidence. Seven years after the crime, DNA evidence led authorities to charge Daryl Hemphill with second-degree murder. According to reports, the senseless act occurred when two groups of people got into a fight near the intersection. Shots were fired and Hemphill escaped the scene. Hemphill was found guilty in the 2005 or in 2015, and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Dana Ewell. When 21-year-old rich kid Dana Ewell learned he would not receive his $7.9 million inheritance until he was 35, he set a devious plan in motion to expedite the process. Ewell, who had been living with his millionaire parents as well as his sister Tiffany, derived a plot for brutally execute his family. Ooh, this is like Shit's Creek, you know, the rated R version. That sounds horrible. The plan took place on Easter Sunday, 1992. The bodies of Dale, Glee, and Tiffany Ewell were discovered in their ranch home in Fresno, California. Each were dead with gunshot wounds. Dale was shot in the back as he entered the home, unaware his dead wife and daughter. Crime scene investigated. Crime scene evidence suggested a murder-for-hire scheme, and the authorities quickly focused their investigations on surviving son, Dana. At the time of the murder, Dana was away with his girlfriend and her parents. However, with the testimony of Ernest Jack Ponce, authorities were able to connect him to the crime. According to Ponce, he and Dana's classmate, Joel Redovich, were offered a share of the $7.9 million if they committed the crime. Dana Elwell and two accomplices were all sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Oh my gosh. Like, just because he couldn't have his millions right then, he had to wait until, like, a little bit later that he was still going to be a millionaire. Like, if you said, you're going to be poor for 10 years, but then after you're poor for 10 years, you're going to get millions of dollars I'd, I'd put up with the 10 years it's fine <laughs> oh my gosh such senseless killing <laughs> all right chicago easter slayings gang violence was at an all-time high in chicago 2014 the easter weekend was no exception during the holy weekend 45 people were shot nine were killed 36 were injured from gun violence Five of the victims were between the ages of 11 to 15 years old. Several had been shot while playing at the park next to an elementary school. One 16-year-old victim was even shot outside of his church. The weekend of violence prompted the FBI to form Violent Crimes Unit to focus on gun violence in the Chicago area. This year, as homicides continued to grow in the city, community leaders created the Thou Shalt Not Murder campaign 
urging individuals to end the violence. The community hopes to have murder-free Easter Sunday this year. Thou shalt not murder. Oh my gosh. <sighs> the Mad Sculptor. Love and mental instability caused 29-year-old Robert Irwin to murder three people on Easter weekend in 1937. Again, this is a different Robert Irwin than we know and love. This was in 1937. Irwin, dubbed the Mad Sculptor by the press, was an artist with an obsession for young women named Ethel Gideon, with a young woman named Ethel Gideon. I was like, there's more than one name that? Alright, he decided that if he could not have her as love, as his love, he would murder her. Irwin went to Ethel's home to find her mother Mary and sister Veronica. He claims he murdered the two accidentally, stabbing and strangling them and discarding their half-naked bodies. But the mad sculptor didn't end the massacre there. He stabbed and killed a male tenant with an ice pick too. The crimes were heavily publicized at the time, especially since Veronica was a nude model for magazines. And Irwin, who had previously spent his time in mental institutions for trying to cut off his own genitals with a razor, confessed to the murders at his trial. He was sentenced to life in prison. Oh my goodness. Wow. Tried to cut off his own genitals. No, no. <laughs> I need to take a minute on that one. That's crazy. All right. I mean, sometimes I think I'm crazy, but I've never tried to cut off my own genitals crazy. So, yeah. <laughs> if that's like a bar that we're measuring stuff on, I'm, I think I'm good. <laughs> All right. The Easter Sunday Massacre. James Rupert never felt good enough, and his insecurities led him to murder. On Easter Sunday, 1975, Rupert walked downstairs of the home he shared with his mother and slaughtered 11 members of his family. He first entered the kitchen with a 357 Magnum and a 22 caliber handgun and began firing. At one point, he sat on the couch in the living room and took out four of his nieces and nephews, one by one. Oh my gosh. The victims included his 75-year-old mother, Charity and his 42-year-old brother Leonard and Leonard's family. According to reports, Rupert was brought to this breaking point after his mother threatened to kick him out of if he didn't straighten up his life. It is believed he resented Leonard for being more successful than him in life. He is serving two life sentences now and was recently denied parole for one of the deadliest shootings in history. Oh my gosh. Whew, my gosh, being able to shoot kids. It's a sick mind right there. All right, welcome back to Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and we're reading about Easter stories and resurrections. All right, we're going to hop over to Thought Catalog. 20 Creepy True Stories to Read in the Dark Tonight by Chrissy Stockton. And again, I know we've read this in a previous episode, but we're going to read it again uh, just because it has to do with Easter. It's called The Man in the Bunny Costume. When I was younger, I used to live by the woods and could see the cemetery from my back porch. One Easter, I remember waking up and seeing the Easter Bunny, one of those terrifying costumes. And what really gets me is I remember smelling wet hay. When I woke up, I didn't tell anyone, but there was an extra Easter egg in my house that my parents didn't hide. 
Years later, when I was in high school, I asked my parents if they ever dressed like the Easter Bunny and came into our room. They said they would never go through such trouble. Then my younger sister, who I shared a bunk bed with when this happened, she said she remembers the Easter Bunny came into our room, made a remark about the hay smell. I was terrified that both we both remembered seeing the person dressed as the bunny in our room. To make it even stranger, I told the friends, my friends I sat with at lunch what happened. One of the girls was my neighbor across the street. She told me one Easter a long time ago, she looked out the window during the night and saw the Easter bunny standing in her driveway. I had chills. To this day, I am terrified of people in rabbit costumes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was a good one. Alrighty. And I could, didn't think we could actually do a resurrection uh, video or podcast or anything like that without actually mentioning the Bible at some point. Um, so I have an article here that says, All the People Raised from the Dead in the Bible. It comes from LearnReligions.com and by Mary Fairchild. So if you believe the Bible, these are true. If you don't believe the Bible, these are stories. All right. Number one, the widow of Zarephath's son. These names are hard. This comes from 1 Kings 17.17 through 24. During a time of great drought, the prophet Elijah in Tishbite had been lodging at the house of the widow of Zephira, a pagan city in Phoenicia. Unexpectedly, the woman's son grew sick and finally stopped breathing. She accused Elijah of bringing God's wrath on her for her sin. Carrying the boy in the upper room where he was staying, Elijah laid him on the bed and stretched his hands out over the body three times and cried out for God uh, for the boy's life to return. God heard Elijah's prayers. The child's life did come back, and Elijah carried him downstairs. The woman declared the prophet a man of God and his words to be the truth. By performing this miracle in Phoenicia, God showed that he is the Lord of all nations and that their god Baal was a false god. Alright, the Shunammite woman's son. Elisha, prophet after Elijah, stayed in the upper room of a wealthy couple in Shunem. He prayed for the woman to bear a son and God answered. Several years later, the boy complained of a pain in his head and then died. The woman raced to Mount Carmel to Elisha, who sent his servant ahead, and the boy did not respond. Finally, Elisha went to see the dead body. He cried out to the Lord and laid himself on the dead body, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. The boy grew warm, and he sneezed seven times, indicating a perfect work of God, and opened his eyes. When Elisha presented the boy back to his mother, she fell and bowed to the ground in worship. And she picked up her son and left the room rejoicing with gratitude. And that's from 2 Kings 4, 18-37. Number 3. The Israelite Man After Elisha the prophet died, he was buried in a cave or tomb. Moabite raiders attacked Israel every spring, one time interrupting a funeral. Fearing for their own lives, the burial party quickly threw the body in the first convenient place, Elijah's tomb. Elisha's tomb. As soon as the body touched Elisha's bones, the dead man came to life and stood up on his feet. Evidently, the men who tossed his body in Elisha's tomb observed the man rise to the, from the dead and spread the story far and wide. The miracle was a foreshadowing of how Christ's death and resurrection turned 
the grave into a passageway to new life. That's 2 Kings 13, 20-21. Widow of Nine's Son At the town gate of the village of Nine, Jesus and his disciples encountered a funeral procession. The only son of a widow was to be buried. When Jesus saw her, his heart went out to her. He touched the buyer that held the body. The bearer stopped, and Jesus told the young man to get up. And the son sat up and began talking. Jesus gave him back to his mother. All the people were astounded, praising God. And they said, A great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. That was from Luke seven eleven through 17. Jairus's daughter. When Jesus was in Capernaum, Jairus, a leader in the synagogue, begged him to heal his 12-year-old daughter because she was dying. On the way, a messenger said not to bother because the girl had died. But Jesus said, don't be afraid, only believe, and your daughter will be healed. Jesus arrived at the house and found mourners outside. When he said she was not dead but sleeping, they laughed at him. He went in, took her by the hand, and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and she rised to life again. Jesus ordered her parents to give her something to eat, but not to tell anyone what happened. That was from Luke 49 through 56. Lazarus. Three of Jesus' closest friends were Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus of Bethany. Oddly, when Jesus had was told Lazarus was sick, Jesus stayed two more days where he was. And when he left, Jesus plainly, Jesus said plainly Lazarus had died. By the time he arrived in Bethany, Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Martha met him outside the village where Jesus told her, Your brother will rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. They approached the tomb where Jesus wept. Um, although Lazarus had been dead many days, because even in those days they knew within three days, it's possible that the body could come back to life. Um, but that fourth day had passed, and that's why everybody was upset. Like, it's already been four past four days. Jesus ordered the stone rolled away and said, Did I not tell you to believe? You will see the glory of God. Rising his eyes to heaven, he prayed aloud to his father. Then he commanded Lazarus to come out, and the man who was dead walked out wrapped in burial clothes. That's from John 11, 1 through 44. Number seven, Jesus. Several men conspired to murder Jesus Christ. After a mock trial, he was scourged and taken to the Golgotha Hill outside of Jerusalem, where Roman soldiers nailed him to a cross. But it was all part of God's plan of salvation for humanity. After Jesus died Friday, his lifeless body was put into the tomb of Joseph of Aramea, Arimathea, where a seal was attached. Guards placed at the place. Guard, soldiers guarded the place. Sunday morning, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. Angels said Jesus was raised from the dead. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene and then to the apostles, then to many others around the city. And that's from Matthew 28, 1 through 20. Mark, Luke, and John all have references of the same. Saints in Jerusalem. Um, Jesus Christ died on the cross. An earthquake struck, breaking open many graves and tombs in Jerusalem. Um, after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, godly people who had died earlier were raised to life. It appeared to many in the city. 
Matthew is vague in his gospel, but how many rose and what happened to them afterwards? Bible scholars think there was another sign of a great resurrection to come. Tabitha or Dorcas? Everyone in the city of Joppa loved Tabitha. She always was doing good, helping the poor, making some garments for others. One day, she grew sick and died. Uh, women washed her body and placed it in an upstairs room. They sent for the Apostle Peter, um, who fell to his knees and prayed and said, Tabitha, get up. And she sat up, and Peter gave her to her friends alive. Uh, number 10, Eutychus. It was a packed third-story room in the room of Troas. The hour was late. Many oil lamps made the quarter warm, and the Apostle Paul spoke on and on. Sitting in a windowsill, the young man Eutychus dozed off, falling from the window to his death. Paul rushed outside and threw himself on the lifeless body. Immediately, Eutychus came back to life. Paul went back upstairs, broke bread, and ate. And the people relieved took Eutychus home. And that's from Acts 27 through 12. All right. So let me see. Any more? Nope. So that's going to be it for our resurrection stories. Um, I hope you enjoyed. Um, and yeah, makes you real confident for when you actually die, right? Um, I think I'm going to have one of those bells or like walkie-talkie or something put in my casket with me one day, <laughs> just in case. Um, but yeah, it was a known thing that people could come back within three days, you know, suddenly snap awake and... Um, that was just known. It was probably because people weren't really dead. They were probably in comas and stuff. But it was that like four-day marker where people were like, all right, they're dead. They're not coming back. So, yeah, just weird, weird, weird lore. So there we go. I hope you enjoyed our stories tonight. And be sure to check us out on our Facebook page, Paranormal Stories, Spooky Shizzes in Parentheses. Um, that's where we post a bunch of spooky memes. That's where we put a bunch of listener stories as well. Um, and we have dialogue. So go ahead and join us on there. We are doing a Waverly Hills outing uh, April 16th. It's a Friday. Um, if there's any spots still available, feel free to join. Um, if you see any spots in the future that you want to do another outing on, I'm game to go more than once, um, as Waverly Hills is one of the most haunted places in our local area, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, so yeah, without further ado, I will sign off and stay spooky, my friends. Bye-bye.